At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Live from Liverpool, the dark paranormal, season seven. Hi everyone, I'm Kevin Eustace and welcome back to The Dark Paranormal Season 7. On today's show, it's my pleasure to share with you one of the most convincing true paranormal experiences I think I've ever received. The individual involved has provided a list of names, email addresses and contact details for people in the story to validate their experience. It also took them a period of days to complete this email because it was so emotionally raw for them to write down. It truly reads like a diary of paranormal experiences that I can't wait to share with you. But before we get into this genuine paranormal experience, I of course need to thank our Patreons. When you sign up to Patreon, not only do you receive these episodes ad-free and before anyone else, you also receive access to the Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites a true paranormal experience show which releases each and every week, even on the downtime between seasons. We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over on Patreon, and we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. Now, for full disclosure, normally I would be reading the names of all of the new Patreons right now, However, I'm actually recording this just after recording last week's episode, because this week, as you hear these words, we're away on holiday. So if you've signed up to join our team since last week's episode, don't fret. I'll be doing a catch-up readout on next week's show, meaning anyone signing up now will have their name read out on next week's show. So if you'd like to have early access ad-free to all Dark Paranormal episodes and gain access to the entire back catalogue and new episodes each week of the Patreon-only podcast Dark Bites, head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. Now, as you all know, here on The Dark Paranormal, I always ask you to leave your disbelief at the door. However, some stories require you to leave less of your disbelief at the door, due to how sincere they seem. The following true paranormal experience from Teresa definitely fits under that category. As I mentioned earlier, it took Teresa several attempts to get this story down to send in. 
the reason being, she just didn't want to revisit it. And of course, I've edited them out for data protection reasons. But she also provided a full list of names and email addresses and telephone numbers of the individuals mentioned, including members of the clergy involved in the experience, in case I wanted to try and verify her story. However, as you listen, I think you'll agree with me, the account is so sincere and so personally harrowing that the sincerity of the email itself, for me anyway, is validation enough. Also, just a trigger warning on today's episode, there are topics of domestic abuse covered in today's paranormal experience. And I'd like to thank Teresa for her honesty and courage in committing this experience to email. So now, lower the lights, make yourself comfortable, and of course, leave your disbelief at the door as we hear all about an uninvited guest. I'm unsure of where to start with this, so I'm going to start at the beginning. And I apologise in advance for all of the tangents I will no doubt go on. See, I'm struggling to even type these words, as the main events were a very dark time in my life. And I'm going to add some background because it's important that you get a rounded view of me as a young adult and then make up your mind about what happened to me. It's probably going to take me a few days to write this down, so again, I apologise if this appears disjointed, but I'll do my best to follow a chronological order. The events I will write about will follow later, but I want to add that I believe. I've seen spirits ever since I was young, but since this event, I refuse to even acknowledge that part of myself. I shut it down in an instant due to the long-lasting and far-reaching impact that the event had on me and my son. I'm a 42-year-old educated woman. I'm currently working towards my second degree. I'm a mother of two and my eldest is 23 and at university in Sheffield, studying biological medicine. My youngest son is 12 and in secondary school. However, the focus of this story is my eldest son. I work full-time in a management position and I just want you to know I'm not usually considered deranged, though I'm sure my husband would disagree on occasions. My first spirit was when I was approximately three or four. I know I was this age as I wasn't in school and it was in my aunt's house who incidentally had to have the house blessed before eventually deciding to move out as her sons, my cousins, were apparently being tormented by something in the house. Obviously, I would not have known this at the time. I was little more than a toddler. I only found out once I was much older and I was discussing with my father about what I originally saw in the house. I don't tell many people as they are so judgmental, asking me why I didn't tell my parents. But that I can't explain. I didn't tell my mother who was there at the time because, quite frankly, my mother was a no-nonsense woman who in today's parenting circles would definitely be considered abusive. However, at that time and era, children were merely something you did once you got married 
with no concern about their emotional needs or well-being. However, this was my first spirit. I went upstairs and I'd just reached the top of the stairs when I saw a fog-like substance, literally forming into a pair of feet. I remember thinking they looked like hairy monster feet, kind of like the Gruffalo style is the best way I can explain it. And they appeared to be coming out from under the bathroom door at the top of the stairs. I wasn't alarmed at that point. I just stood watching this fog take on the form of a very tall being. It took the shape of a man, made up of greenish colours. I looked up and its grin or smile was wrong. I still remember it now, like it was trying to be friendly, but the smile came off, well, fake. Then I remember feeling alarm, but not knowing how to name that feeling and trying to rush off as fast as my little legs would allow down the stairs whilst gripping onto the banister so not to fall. As an adult, I'm studying a psychology degree, so I'm learning about how memories form as children. And the general train of thought is, children remember events with emotions attached. Hence why no one remembers what they had for breakfast, but anything with an emotion attached creates a pathway in our brains. I don't remember mentioning it to anyone, and it was only as I got older that I pieced together the images of what I saw. Various paranormal events occurred throughout my teenage years, which, according to the priest who assisted with the final events, advised me that pubescent girls have an energy that is akin to poltergeist activity. He used to work in a girls' school, and he said the events he witnessed there were frankly many. And when I asked him why he thought the events were associated with the teenage girls, he said he believed it was something to do with the changes and the massive growth within the body during this period of change, which I think may have some merits. I think it's important to note that I also have two sisters, and we're all only one year apart, so our ages go 42, 41 and 40. During my teenage years, I was always so morbidly interested in the paranormal. And this was pre-internet days. So I had to go and buy books or borrow them from libraries. Anything I could get my hands on from astral projection to spontaneous combustion and back again. I can see now why I had such bad dreams, because this is all I was consuming. However, I would never touch a Ouija board as my dad had sufficiently scared me enough. Even though neither of my parents were remotely religious, this was one area that they were adamant you never touch. I was around 17 when the only light-hearted part of the story comes in. I was babysitting my friend's twins with my boyfriend at the time, Gary, and all I saw was an old white-haired lady pop her head around the corner to look over at the twins which left my super macho boyfriend absolutely freaked out, asking me if I'd seen it and then refusing to talk about it ever again. I was not alarmed at this spirit as I felt no malevolence, but I should add, I've never felt comfortable in that house. I always felt like I was being watched. I just wanted to make you aware that I think maybe I was sensitive to spirits and I'd seen quite a few up to that point. 
This may be due to a fertile, overactive imagination. I was quite a dramatic teenager, but a bit of an introvert as well. Okay, I think now I'm stalling getting to the events. I think I'm terrified of it ever happening again. A few people know what happened, and they fit into two camps. They either believe I was seriously mentally unwell, or they say when I retell the events that the hairs stand up on their bodies and they believe me. However, I don't tell people. Because one, I don't want anything like that to happen to me again. And two, the horrible realisation that people think I'm insane and making it all up because they can't or won't accept that otherworldly things happen. But I say to those type of people, why on earth would I concoct a story of this calibre? I don't want people to think this gentle, slightly eccentric, middle-aged woman is a complete fantasist. I will also provide details of the independent witnesses for verification. The only one I ask you to not contact is the boyfriend at the time. And I use that term loosely, as I was only 19 and he was 37. Today he would be called exactly what he is, but back then, the late 90s, it's a world away from today's society. Also, I find that when I do talk about it, then I get the dreams. They're always on the same layout. I I see the flat and then I'm sucked in. And I can't escape, even though I know where the door is. I'm always floating up on the ceiling and I wake terrified. Anyway, to the event. I don't want to call this a story because it isn't. This was my life that I lived for nearly a year. To set the scene, I was 20 years old and I'd been offered a council flat for me and my son, who was at the time around 18 months old. I was working full-time and fallen into a relationship with my boss at the time, Nigel. He was 17 years older than me. And I'm not making excuses here, but I was a vulnerable teenager with little family support and a childhood of abuse behind me. I had no self-worth and had no idea that I was being groomed or even in an abusive dynamic. As in my limited experience, love hurt. And those that were supposed to love you hurt you in the worst ways imaginable. But I digress. Anyway, the council offered me the flat and Nigel was happy because he wanted to move in so he didn't have to pay rent for his place. He could live off me. Me being the people pleaser I was raised to be, I was falling over myself to ensure everything was perfect for him. It was summertime 2000 when I went to view the flat. And to be fair, you don't have much of an option. You take it or you're homeless. This may be the benefit of hindsight, but the hallway seemed dark. But I paid that no mind and was desperate for the keys. This was my new start. A beautiful baby boy, a full-time job, and studying at night school even back then as a single teenage mother. I was determined not to be a stereotype and to keep gaining educational qualifications to finally go to university, which I eventually managed at the grand old age of 39. 
The address of the flat was in Chelmsley Wood, Birmingham. Full address and postcode provided. It might be worth noting that when I went off researching when I was older about the area, I found that Chelmsley Wood was mentioned in the Doomsday Book, Chialmunds. I may have butchered the spelling, but this is from my memory. And the place has long historical roots. I decided to go to the flat to make a start at making it livable prior to moving in. And this was literally my first alone visit, and only the second time I'd been to the property. I decided to make a start peeling off the wallpaper in the tiny toilet. And when I say tiny, it measured approximately three feet width and four foot length. You couldn't stretch your arms out right in it. I stood on the toilet to reach the high parts because health and safety doesn't exist when you're 20 and you think you're invincible. And I felt someone behind me, which was impossible as I was the only one in the flat and the toilet was so small only I could barely fit in. I know people will say, well, why didn't you turn around? Well, it's because I felt a bone-chilling fear. So I calmed myself down and was like, okay, you're just freaking yourself out because it's a new place and you're on your own. The feeling went away and I calmed down. And then it happened again. This sinister feeling just washing over me. So I packed up my stuff and I left. Most people would say, well, why did you even move in? But bear in mind, I hadn't even moved in at this point. And it was this or the streets. Plus, I had a young baby to think about. So once I got out, I rationalised it and thought I was just feeling vulnerable as I would truly be living on my own. And that was a scary thought, being alone with a young baby. I moved in with Connor, my firstborn, a wonderful, calm, kind and loving son. And for a few months, low-level things happened. But it was stuff that could be easily explained away. For instance, the photos and ornaments were constantly being turned around and upside down. I rationalised it away and said, well, it must be Connor. He must be messing with the photos and the ornaments. It's strange to speak about it now, but on some level, I knew something was really wrong. But I had no one to turn to. My mother wasn't very nice, and my partner was horrific. Please don't think this is a woe-is-me tale, because I promise you it isn't. I have a wonderful life now, full of love. But at that time, he was horrendously abusing me and I had no one to tell as I was completely isolated. And the survival instinct in me prevented me from focusing on the paranormal, as all of my energy went into working, raising the baby, and keeping our little heads above water. I was just trying to survive my life at that time. As I said, love and pain were synonymous in my repertoire, and it was all I knew at that point in my life. The low-level activity would continue. The television would change channel on its own. But I explained that away as one of the neighbours may be having the same remote control. Light bulbs were constantly blowing. I must have changed them so much I thought there was an electrical fault. The television blew up like literally all the tubes just smashed 
At this point, I knew something was going on. Every time I came home from work, something would be moved or upside down. One evening, I'd just put Connor to bed, and the flat wasn't very large. But from my vantage point on the sofa, I could see down the hallway to Connor's bedroom, which had the door open. He was sleeping in a slightly bigger bed now, still a toddler bed with bars on the side, but larger than a cot. Something made me look up and down the hall. Why, I don't know, as I couldn't see anything. Literally nothing. It was blacker than black. Yes, no lights were on in the hall because this would have kept him awake, but the lounge lights were on, so there should have been some glow into the hall. But nothing. It was like a dark void. I squinted my eyes to see if I could make out the baby lying in bed, when all of a sudden, the light bulb in the hall shattered, and I don't mean blue, I mean shattered. Shards of glass everywhere, and the screw-in part still attached to the fixture, with the ends exposed. Then there was a moment of utter silence. Connor screamed with that terrifying toddler cry that a mum knows means something is wrong. I flew to the baby's room and got him out of bed, and he was distraught, but half asleep as well. And obviously he couldn't tell me in words what was wrong as he was too small, but he was upset. After that initial event, it really started to begin in earnest. I began to see a therapist as I actually thought I was losing my mind and that I was somehow responsible for what was going on. To add to this, my partner was gaslighting me, so I wasn't sure if I was truly losing my grip on reality, and it made telling people what was going on difficult. I knew he would be telling those people who knew me that I was in the grip of a mental illness, and that I couldn't be believed. This may be in part to keep his abuse secret, I would just like to clarify I've never been diagnosed with a mental illness other than my PTSD from my formative years and the four years I spent in his clutches. I think my therapist has since died as I've not been able to get any notes from them around this time. Emails go unanswered and the phone number rings out. I would really be interested to know what he made of my hypervigilant state and my incoherent stories at that time. Therapist details provided. Anyway, life moved on as it invariably does. Only now, I was not only hypervigilant from the abuse I was suffering, but from a presence that was demanding my attention. As I said, during my teenage years, I was always interested in the paranormal, and I bought myself a magazine with some tarot cards on them. I know now this is just another way to invite unwanted spirits. But at the time, I thought it was a game and would tell my future. For some reason, I always used to sit in the same place and play my cards. And this went on to me trying automatic writing. I know it sounds silly and it's impossible to describe a feeling, but I felt as though someone was using my hand to write like I had no control over it. I remember opening my eyes and looking at the paper and not being able to make sense of what was there. It looked like scrawls and random letters. I was bathing the baby one evening 
and I used to wear glasses. Laser eye surgery later corrected this, but I had terrible eyesight and the baby used to like to splash. So I would take my glasses off when I was bathing him. And the bathroom was so small, I would have to kneel with the door open and my feet would be in the doorway. So I would angle myself over the bath to help Connor bathe himself. I was sat knelt down with my feet underneath me, pointing to the doorway, and my top half angled with my arms hanging on the top of the bath, just watching Connor play. He was learning new words daily, so he was conversing as such with me, when we both heard the front door open and close harshly, signalling Nigel had returned home from work. I instantly went on high alert as I was so in tune with his moods, If he'd had a bad day at work, you could guarantee that kicking girl here would be on the brunt end of his frustration. So I held my breath, put my fake happy cheery front on for the baby, and just waited. I felt him come up behind and scratch the soles of my feet. Not with a fingernail. It was sharper than that. It was like, I imagine how a sharp curved knitting needle would feel and I breathed a sigh of relief, as that meant he was in a good mood if he was tickling my feet, albeit with an unknown implement. So, all was well. So now, with a genuine smile on my face, I turned round to say hi, and the colour drained from my face. There was no one there. Even with my terrible eyesight, I could still see, So I jumped up and was reluctant to leave Connor in the bathroom alone, as he was so small. So I shouted, Nigel, are you home? Is that you? No response. Now I thought maybe he was in a bad mood and had gone to the bedroom to sulk. I picked Connor up out of the bath. My heart was racing. I knew something was wrong. I wrapped him in a towel and walked down to the bedroom. No, Nigel. I checked the entire flat. No, Nigel. He hadn't come home. We were all alone. Around this time, Connor started having terrible night terrors that you literally couldn't wake him from. And I was having nightmares of a figure telling me he had killed my son. Nigel wasn't at the flat all the time. He worked all week and was out every weekend, sometimes not coming back at all, and he was reluctant to even acknowledge anything was happening, until it happened to him. There was always a terrible smell in the kitchen, like something rotting, but no matter how hard I cleaned it, it would still be there. And even though these events are in chronological order, it wasn't constant with the big events, It was more low-level constantly, to the point where it became almost normal. Nigel was trying to sleep, and eventually he got up and said, I can't stay here. And I thought, oh great, he's found another woman to take him in for the night. So he's going to have to engineer an argument so he can justify to himself that he has every right to leave for a few days. Or until she realises what he's like and sends him back to me. So I said, what's wrong? And he replied, 
Every time I close my eyes, I see a hooded figure standing over me, inches from my face, and it won't let me get any rest. There were a plethora of low-level things, like when Nigel hung a mirror opposite the hallway where the bulk of the activity was, and I kept seeing things in it out of my peripheral vision. I think he did too as he took it down soon after. It got to the point I was too scared to stay in the flat on my own, and he used to leave regularly, so I asked my sister, Rachel, to come and stay with me as I was in a constant state of fear. Let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank account. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong-arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies, and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to-do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We were just chatting, shooting the breeze in the kitchen, when the radio I used to have in the kitchen turned itself on and up loud. But what scared my sister the most, to the point of her leaving, was the fact it wasn't plugged in. I told her it was battery operated, which it wasn't. But even if it had have been, you would still have had to physically move the switch to turn it on and then move the volume button round in a circle. But I lied to calm her down so she didn't leave me on my own, with the baby, in this flat. Around this time, I decided I couldn't take this living in fear anymore. But with little to no resources, it was unlikely I could move flats. 
I did apply to the council for an exchange, and when they asked why I needed to move, I looked insane, saying, it's a haunted flat, and was ridiculed and obviously not moved up the housing ladder. Luckily, I was working in a job which was starting to give me a bit of self-esteem, and there were people there who I spoke to daily who knew something was up with my home life. One of the older ladies suggested I contact the church. I'd recently passed my driving test, and this gave me such independence for Connor and I. So, one night after work, I rocked up at the church not having made an appointment, or even knowing how to contact the vicar, and spoke to someone in the church who said I would need to make that appointment, and gave me the vicar's telephone number. I called, and he asked to see me and Nigel at his church later in the same week. I think he knew I was truly terrified of something I couldn't see, nor articulate. At that point in my life, I wasn't very erudite, and I had no way of expressing my emotions as I couldn't even understand them. But I knew fear, and that's what I expressed. Whilst I waited to see the vicar, I started a little pre-internet search of my own, and as coincidental as this is, my aunt told me the people who lived in my old flat had moved into the house opposite hers. She spoke to them when they moved in and they got talking and told her how they'd moved from a flat, locally. My aunt put two and two together because of the timings. It was a stroke of luck, and I swear I have no idea where I got the confidence from, but I went and knocked on the door to speak to them. I told her who I was and where I lived, and I asked if that was the flat she used to live in. She confirmed that it was. I was unsure how to broach the subject, so I just went with nothing ventured, nothing gained, and asked right out, did you have anything strange happen to you in that flat? She sort of smiled, like she wasn't sure if I was a loony or I was joking, and I told her snippets of things that was happening to me. She said that whilst nothing overt had happened, she said she had felt uncomfortable. And if her partner was on nights, she would keep the kids up so she wasn't alone. So I said goodbye and thanked her. Goodness knows what she must have thought about me at that time. When the day of the vicar's appointment came round, Nigel and I both went along. And I explained what was happening and that I was too scared to be in the flat. Nigel, being so much older than me and much more confident in his demeanour, really tried his best to make me look like the little woman who was finding working full-time, running a house and raising a baby too difficult and that I was losing the plot and couldn't cope. To the outside world, that's probably how it looked. However, I knew my truth. I was raising a baby and doing a bloody good job and working a full-time job with no financial or emotional support especially from him. And these things were happening to me, and well, he knew it. But to keep me isolated and have everyone think I was fragile, he tried to make it look like I was completely out of touch with reality. The vicar said he would visit the flat at the weekend, as he could see I was in a wretched state, and that I was visibly scared. The day came, and as it was the weekend, 
Nigel had his standing appointment at the pub, leaving me to greet the vicar alone. So I asked my cousins to stay with me as I was too scared, even in the daytime, to be there alone. The vicar arrived and he advised me he wasn't a psychic nor a medium, but he did say he felt uncomfortable in the flat. Then, with no one around it, the front door opened and closed. Not slammed like previously, more of a high and by. So I get up to look and there's definitely no one there, which actually for the first time I was glad of. Someone who was respectable and older had witnessed something out of the realms of normality. Or so I thought. Or maybe the latch hadn't been on right. Maybe the wind had opened it and closed it again. See, that's how I was at the time. Always second-guessing myself. Never sure of myself. The vicar asked me a raft of questions, and that's when I told him about the tarot cards and automatic writing. He said these were tools to commune with something that probably has never walked the earth in human form. And as there are layers of the paranormal, there are ghosts which he believed to be echoes of people throughout time, then poltergeists, which is the activity I was on the receiving end of, which, contrary to popular belief, was not a playful spirit. They were, in fact, entities that had never been human. He gave me a proper education, and I think it was him that spurred me into taking religion seriously and getting the boys and myself christened and attending church. And he gave me a real respect for the paranormal, learning to not engage in things I know nothing about. He said he would need to get permission to perform the rites, and he would need two other vicars to help him, as he believed me. I could have cried that he believed me, and this was all going to be over with soon. We'd been in that flat over a year at this point, and I think I was at breaking point with the lack of sleep from nightmares, the hypervigilance, wondering what was going to happen next to terrify me. I just had to get through these next few days whilst the vicar and the church got themselves ready. Around this time, Nigel had been searching for another job and had been having interviews up in the Wirral for the Vauxhall plant, so he was gone a lot of the time, leaving me and Connor the sole focus of the entity's whims. One day, the microwave inexplicably set on fire. There was no reason for this to happen as it wasn't being used. I appreciate it could have been an electrical fault and the whole electrical stuff could have been one fault after another but I just know this wasn't the case. The number of times my fears were shut down with rational arguments by people who had never been in my home were astounding and they taught me not to mention the goings-on to anyone. The day of the ceremony finally came and the three vicars came to my tiny flat. It was a struggle to get us all in the hall, and they did their prayers and their ceremony. They sprinkled holy water and prayed throughout the flat. Nothing crazy happened like in the movies. It just felt a bit colder. I think I knew that nothing changed, because it was a few days later, all hell broke loose.
This is the incident that made me leave, and we moved up north to Brombra for Nigel's job. I literally packed up my life and moved. I was in the kitchen, alone, as things had been quieter since the ritual, and I was doing a fantastic facade of everything is wonderful, my life is a bed of roses routine. I was kneeling on the floor in the kitchen one evening doing something. I think I was wrapping something up. When I went cold, and I felt that all-cloaking, all-enveloping fear. People say you might run or you scream, but I assure you, you don't. You freeze. You truly freeze in place. The light went out, and the strange darkness that my eyes couldn't penetrate was back. I just knew it was here, and it was coming for me. I couldn't move a muscle. I just knew I had to live through it. And, in the dark, I felt something cold just so slightly brush my left cheek. Then I heard a faint sound of something touching the tiled floor. After what seemed like an eternity, I got my breathing under control. There seemed to be a bit of brightness coming back into the room, and I managed to stand up and turn around and open the door wider to allow the light from the hall to spill into the kitchen. I looked down at where I'd been, and there, next to where I'd been kneeling, was the intact light bulb, out of the fixture from the ceiling, still intact. It had somehow unscrewed itself and floated past my face, landing on the tile floor with little more than a chink, and not smashed into a thousand pieces. This was the final straw, and I was going. Even if it meant going back to my parents' house for shelter, that was what I would do. The story doesn't end there. The flat ended up going to someone I know. Instead of handing the flat back to the council, we did a kind of mutual exchange. I did full disclosure with her, and she knew what was happening, but she still wanted the flat. I believe she ended up buying the flat when I did speak to her after I left Brombra and came back to Birmingham. She said she knew something was there, but they'd asked out loud to be left alone. They also called him an old man's name, like Arthur or Fred, and they hadn't really been bothered by him. But they also didn't like being in the flat alone, and that was as much confirmation as I was likely to get. A couple of years later, I was at a parent's evening for Connor, and I was reading one of his books. It had the usual. My name is Connor. I'm six years old. And with the help of the teacher, it was things like, I like riding my bike. In the I don't like section, there was a picture of a stick child in bed, looking like they were crying. And underneath, the teacher had written, I don't like it when my bed shakes. I went cold. I just knew what he was talking about. I tried to talk to him when he got older, as I assumed because he was only two or three, he wouldn't have any memory of it. But he had perfect clarity, and his eyes went wide. 
He said his bed used to shake all the time, and it woke him up and terrified him. That's why he was crying in his sleep. I thought his night terrors were down to all the domestic violence he'd been exposed to. So, I wonder, was this thing feeding on my emotions? Maybe this is why it wasn't as strong with other people. Or did I truly have some sort of psychotic, lack-of-reality-type episode? I used to visit the Solihull Library archives, and for a month straight every Saturday morning, I went through newspapers from when they began in the 70s through to the 90s, when local papers were falling out of favour and replaced with the internet. However, I never found anything relating to a murder or a suicide in the flat that I lived in but maybe this would not have been reported in the papers. I don't know where else to try to try and get information on the history of the place. My husband sagely advises me to leave it all alone, saying there are some things we're just not meant to know. Thank you so much, Teresa, for your true paranormal experience. And, like I've said before, sometimes the most terrifying thing on this earth isn't the paranormal. It's what humans do to each other. I'm so sorry to hear about the domestic abuse you suffered at the hands of your partner and the abuse you suffered at the hands of your family. But I'm glad to hear that now you have a life full of love and achievement. It's very inspirational. There is such an interesting thing going on with this whole event. One of the most fascinating things to me is how different people have perceived the entity within that apartment in different ways. Could it be down to their belief systems, how they were brought up, or indeed, as you state, what sort of negative energies they are given out or subject to that will amplify or stifle the activity in that flat? The idea that a dark entity will feed off negative emotions is not a new one, and given what you had to endure at that stage of your life, it would seem like that place would be a breeding ground for malevolence. But either way, Teresa, I'd really like to thank you for finding the strength to revisit those topics and that time in your life once more to write this email for the show. And I'm glad to hear that you're now comfortably in the life you deserve. So that wraps up episode four of season seven of The Dark Paranormal. Don't forget, if you'd like to sign up to our Patreon and get access to the entire back catalogue of Dark Bites episodes, head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. And thank you as ever for choosing to spend your time with me here on the show. I'll speak to you next week for episode 5 of season 7. Already at the halfway point, I can't believe it. And in the meantime, remember, when you're discussing the paranormal, always try and leave some of your disbelief at the front door. And I'll see you next time, here on The Dark Paranormal.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.